0: Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. So we're going to look at the life of the Apostle Paul and his epistle to the Ecclesia at Thessalonica. we, we provided the introduction, didn't we, and our exhortation yesterday. Now when we think about the Apostle Paul, this is a man who was schooled in the law. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the eminent rabbi. And it was he, wasn't it, who persecuted the early ecclesia, and it would have been a dramatic event in his life when he realised the importance in the purpose of God of Stephen, and how he allowed the, the stoning of Stephen to, to take place. Perhaps he was the the orchestrator of those events, and it was that flashing bright light that he experienced, wasn't it, on the road to Damascus, and it was... God, who spoke to Ananias and and said about the Apostle Paul, we, we know these words, but let us remind ourselves of the importance of these words. For he is a chosen vessel unto me, says God, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. When the Apostle Paul visited the city of Thessalonica, it was already a well-established city with a with a long history. It was situated on the coast, and its name was Therma. If anyone has anyone been to Salonica, Thessalonica? Yes, a, a few hands. Well, the importance of this city um, is in the roots of the hot springs, the hot springs thermae, and, and this is where the first name came from the ancient town of Therma. But it was the great military general Cassander who renamed the city Thessalonica after his wife's name who happened to be the daughter um, or the sister, I should say, of Alexander the Great. So keeping in favour with Alexander the Great. And this is where the name comes from. And you can see there um, Thessalonica by Philippi in the area of Macedonia. It's, it's in that area where Paul responds to the vision of Acts chapter 16, a man from Macedonia. And it is Thessalonica, which is really the leading city of, or the leading province of that area of Macedonia, including Berea and Philippi. Now today, Thessalonica is the second largest city in Greece. It's a commercial port. And if I were to say that its great university is called the University of Aristotle, you you get a sense of the type of city it is. It's deeply rooted in its intellectual history. So this was an intellectual hotspot, brothers and sisters. It was also one of the wealthiest trade centers of the Roman Empire. As I mentioned, it was the capital of the province of Macedonia, And also its location was, was absolutely ideal because huge um, advantages were taken for trade. Uh, not only was it a port, but it was an intersection of two great roads, two great Roman roads, and it promoted exchange and sale between Thessalonica, Rome, and the whole Byzantium Empire. So this was a, um, a metropolis. Well, these early brothers and sisters is also a a wicked place. It was full of idolatry. Idolatry was widespread. There were two local gods to the Ecclesia at Thessalonica. One was Dionysus, who was the Greek god of wine and joy. And the other one was Kiberus, an unusual god, He was one who oversaw the soldiers. It was a port, and so this type of god was important to them. And it also aided fertility. An unusual god, but a god that was deeply sought after. And then there were the main gods. There was Zeus, the god of the sky and thunder, who sat on Mount Olympus. We'll come across Mount Olympus during the course of this week. Uh, There was Aphrodite. the the goddess of love and beauty and pleasure and procreation, all the loves of man. And then there was Demeter, who was the the Greek goddess of the harvest and fertility of the earth. So this was a Baal. We've been looking at Elijah this past week. Well, this is the local Baal, Demeter. And as loyal citizens of the empire, the other god that was worshipped in a widespread way was the emperor. So if you think about it, brothers and sisters, at the outset of our classes this week, this was the most unlikely place, wasn't it, for the the truth to take root. It was a hotbed of idolatry and wickedness, it was an intellectual hotspot, and it was a commercial town. All the vices of men were here. Yet the Ecclesia took root because of the vision of the man from Macedonia. And so who are we to say, brothers and sisters, where? In situations, who are we to say that the, the truth won't take root and there won't be an ecclesia in a particular place or that one campaign is not going to work? Who are we to say that? These are all faithful responses to that call. So this is the reason why we've called our theme for the week, Thessalonica, a model ecclesia for a modern world. Because you know what, when I look out into the world, this is exactly what I see. I I see a world of idolatry and wickedness. I see a a world of technology advancement and intellectualism. I see a, a world that is bent on making gain. It's a world, isn't it, that's disregarded the, the importance of scripture and has pursued materialism at the, at the cost of everything. That is the world that we live in. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the first real ecclesia that's going to respond to God's word, uh, a Gentile ecclesia where, where the truth uh, breaks out of the boundaries of Israel. And, 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 and though it's 2,000 years ago, we can identify with this ecclesia, I would suggest. Just with these opening thoughts, we can see many similarities. And above all of these things... This Ecclesia faced persecution. Now you, know, you might be thinking, well, well, Brother Stephen, we, we don't really face persecution. Well, you just keep that thought. We're, we're going to readdress that a little later this morning. So for me, it tells me anyway that if God so desires, he will allow, allow a Ecclesia to grow and prosper and light to come to the darkest of places if he so blesses. And let us never, ever forget that. If God so desires, the most unlikely situation will flourish. Well, if you look at many commentators on the book of Thessalonians, there's a lot of dispute around who was the author. And just look at the screen. You you can see why, because as you work through this book, there are certain personal pronouns that are used we come across we and us and our and so it would suggest that there were several writers that wrote these two short epistles but that not is not the case so if we've got our bibles open have a look at chapter 2 now and look at verse 18 Wherefore we should have come unto you, even I, Paul. Worth underlining that. If there's any dispute, there's a personal pronoun here. Paul is saying that he is the writer. Even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. If you go to chapter 3 now and verse 5. For this cause when I could no longer forbear, says the Apostle Paul. Have a look at chapter 5 now and go down to verse 27. I charge you again. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. So, it's without doubt that the Apostle Paul is writing these words. Then you come to the second epistle, and perhaps this is the clincher, because you can see here that this epistle is actually signed off in his own hand, 2 Thessalonians in chapter 3, and right there in verse 17, the salutation of Paul with mine own hand. So, though there's a a lot of... um, contention really around who is the author. It's very clear as you work through these two epistles that it's the Apostle Paul. Now now the historical importance of this is important because this is perhaps the earliest epistle of Paul in your New Testament record. It was written around about AD 52 and AD 53. It's to this Gentile Ecclesia in response to Acts chapter 16 and it is written from Corinth which we're going to see in a moment. So these are some of the earliest writings of the Apostle Paul, perhaps the earliest writing. Now the main theme, I'm sure many of you will know, the main theme through this epistle, which I think dovetails beautifully with what Brother John is talking about, is the coming or the parousia. That's the word in the Greek, the parousia. And this is really important because it's not just the coming, but it's the coming of the king that there's um, royal language here. It, it, it is language that relates to dignitary. And it refers to the coming of the emperor. Let me just show you, just in the first epistle, in fact, you find this little signature in every single chapter of these two epistles. But let me just show you in the first epistle, so if you look down at chapter 1 and verse 10, it's worth just underlining these words, because this is probably the preeminent theme, So in chapter 1 and verse 10, you've got wait for his son from heaven. Can you see that? Well, that is the word parousia. Chapter 2 and verse 19, the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming, that is the word parousia. Chapter 3 in the last verse, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is the word parousia. Chapter 4 verse 15, the coming of the Lord, that is the word parousia. And finally, in chapter 5 and verse 23... It is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is the parousia. So repeatedly, in fact, it's a little signature that's found in every single chapter of the two epistles. It is the parousia. And so here then, under inspiration, the Apostle Paul is reminding them of the coming of the emperor. Now, that's rather fascinating, because during the time of writing, who was the emperor of Rome? Well, it was Nero, a man who hated the Christians and the Jews. And it's interesting, because he actually visited the Greek cities of Patras and Corinth, and archaeologists have now discovered that two coins were were struck um, at Patras and Corinth to commemorate The events surrounding the visit of Nero to these two Greek cities. And and what you see on the coins here are the words that are struck, Adventus Augusti Corinth. Okay, These are Latin words, Adventus Augusti Corinth. And and fascinating for us as Bible students that the word Adventus in the Latin is exactly the same word as the Greek word Perusia. Now reflect upon that. What's the point in all of this? Well, as these coins were in circulation, and uh, no doubt Paul could, could, could see these coins, and he's guided by inspiration. But the point that's being made is that the arrival at Thessalonica, what they waited for was the great emperor, the Lord Jesus Christ, a man who was going to bring salvation. And upon all these coins, it was, a, it was relating to the salvation of Nero. And, and there was going to be no salvation for Israel and Bible believing Christians, was there, under, under the reign of Nero? Isn't that lovely? So there's, a, there's a, a striking contrast that's being made of this Perusian. He's, he's writing under inspiration to these believers in Thessalonica, these Gentile believers. You wait. Forget about Nero. There's a greater one to come. And, and, and this language is, is royal language. You, you, you mustn't forget that, brothers and sisters. This is, this is refined language under inspiration. They are waiting for the, 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 the great emperor to come. Well, we looked at the background yesterday, didn't we? This vision of the man of Macedonia and at Lystra, the Apostle Paul picks up Timothy um, and, and, and they go and they're at Troas and at Troas, there's that boat waiting to take them to Philippi and it's there that they hear, come unto Macedonia and help us. And, and great fruit eventually is realized in Philippi, we... we, we Talked very briefly, didn't we, about the faith of Lydia and her household and how she was going to become a catalyst for the gospel. There is the prisoner, in the, the prisoners and the, 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 the one, the, the jailer who oversaw the prison and his house and then there was the, the damsel. And they would have made up this first ecclesia at Philippi and no doubt in my mind that many of those men hardened men that listened to the prayer and the singing and the rejoicing of Paul and Silas at midnight in the jail at Philippi when they were released they also assembled around Lydia and formed the ecclesia there so lovely delightful things happened but what I want to do now with that background and this is why we want to look at that wanted to look at that for our exhortation yesterday so, so with that background let's have a a, a little think about the background of the Thessalonians. So we're going to pick up the narrative from yesterday and come with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and and Paul now has been to Philippi and and you see here, in Acts chapter 17, he's going to make his way to Thessalonica and and interestingly, if you look at verse 2, when he arrives at Thessalonica... You see there, and Paul, as his manner was, he went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because I've already mentioned that it was in Galatia and Lystra and Iconium that Paul pronounced that now the gospel was going forth to the Gentiles, but still notice the order, the sequence. He goes now still to the Jews first. Even though we're under this banner of the truth going forth to the Gentiles, the appeal still goes to the Jews first. Have a look at this. It's worth just noting these in your margin. Come to Acts chapter 9. This is a good one. Acts chapter 9. And after the conversion of Paul, he goes to Damascus. And notice this here. It's a lovely word. Verse 20. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues. This is after he's had his conversion. Straightway. That there's no hesitation with Paul. Straightway, he goes and preaches the truth. If you go to Acts chapter 13 and verse 14, just worth jotting it down in your margins, he follows the same pattern in Antioch. Notice there in chapter 13 and verse 14. And then similarly in chapter 14 and verse 1, he's in. I he does the very same thing. So this is a well-established pattern of the Apostle Paul that we shouldn't overlook. But what I want to do, I'm to draw your attention to chapter 13. And we, we pointed this out, didn't we, yesterday. And as you glance down these verses from 43 to 46, and I want you to imagine here, there's the Apostle Paul. He's in the synagogue. He's prioritising the Jews. And they cannot believe. That the gospel message now is going out to the Gentiles. And their problem was that they thought they had a unique relationship with God. More than that, they thought they had an exclusive relationship with Yahweh the living God. And what's the word that's used? It's a very important word. What's the word that used? That filled the hearts of the Jews when they heard these words? They were filled with envy. Oh, envy. What got Joseph in the pit? Envy. What put Christ on the cross? Envy. Envy. That's a terrible thing, brothers and sisters. That it does horrible things and has dire consequences. And often when you notice that word being used, it's happening in ecclesial life. That's a, that's a point to take on board, isn't it? Let's keep envy outside of the ecclesial home. Envy. A, a terrible thing. And it was out of envy that Paul says, finally, I now go to the Gentiles. So with that thought in mind, having established a little bit of the background, we come to Acts chapter 17 that we were just looking at. And what I want to do is just pick out a couple of phrases. I want, to, I want to picture this in your minds. There's the Apostle Paul. He's going to go in for three Sabbaths. So three weeks there, he's going to go into Thessalonica. And notice in verse 3, he's opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. It's rather unfortunate, isn't it, that translation, opening and alleging. It gives the idea that the Apostle Paul wasn't quite sure what he was saying. Alleging. Well, this is definitive language. I want you just to kind of cross out those words. The, the more accurate translation is expanding and setting forth in argument. Now, that's good Bible scholarship, isn't it? expanding and setting forth in argument how the Lord Jesus Christ was the fulfilment of the Old Testament and he had risen again. And brothers and sisters, if we were given that opportunity, that responsibility, how many of us could expound with open argument? Now, this morning, if we were called to help with the young people, how many of us would we? How many of us would feel confident leaving this hall with our Bibles and talking to the young people and expounding your faith? That's what we need to think about. Now, you, you picture there. There you are in the synagogue, and there's the apostle. Paul. He's getting up three Sabbaths, and he's opening and alleging. He's expounding with argument. Where is he going to go? Well, he's going to go to passages that you know. He's going to go to Genesis 22, isn't he? He's going to go to Psalm 22. his Isaiah 53. Well, what are the types he's going to look at? Well, he's going to look at Isaac, isn't he? And Jonah. And Hezekiah. You know these, brothers and sisters. And that's what the Apostle Paul would have done. And he would have set forth in argument. Now, it must have been a marvellous thing to see Paul in full flow. Have you thought about that? A man sat at the feet of Gamaliel, now endowed with the Spirit of God. And he's in full flow. And it would have amazed, wouldn't it, these Jews? This is a man who had persecuted with an obsession. He was the one who was the, the instigator, I believe, of the stoning of Stephen. And there he is, now in the synagogue, expounding with argument. How the Lord Jesus Christ had risen from the dead, looking at the very passages that they understood. And now he could see Christ. Can you imagine that? Wouldn't it have been lovely? And the Jews, when they heard it, they were filled with hostility. Look look at this. Um, Verse 5 of Acts chapter 17. But the, But the Jews, which believed not, they were moved with envy. they took unto them a certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company and set all the city on uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people now now Joshua, the name Joshua in the Greek is the name Jason, and I would imagine that Jason now has changed his name and taken on the name of Joshua, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Hebrew, this great saviour of Israel, this is a man now who is open, he's not ashamed like the apostle Paul, he is open with his faith. So the Jews gather themselves, notice verse 5, certain lewd fellows of the base sort, the ESV has an interesting translation there, just to listen to these words, but the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, We all talk to our young people, don't mix with the rabble. Well, the rabble now were coming in to find Paul and Silas. They formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And what a frightening moment. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what kind of frightening moments you've had in the service of the Lord, but this was a frightening moment for these early believers, these Gentiles, these these men and women that had been change converted from paganism and suddenly now with a with a military hand rome now is in their homes with the with a view of of finding paul and silas and they can't find them they've providentially gone and so they get jason a man who's bearing the name of jesus christ and they drag him to the courts have, have you ever experienced anything like that for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. How have you ever have you ever reflected upon the life of Jason? He just we just read over him. Would you be prepared to do something like that? Well, what I what I find interesting here, um, verse six, and when they found them not. They drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, saying, These that have turned the world upside down and come thither also. Well, this is fascinating. Not that we ever need to rely on external sources. In fact, I don't like looking at external sources because the Bible is the inspired word of God and it is self contained. But let's make an exception this morning. Do you know, for years and years and years, commentators have challenged here the account of Luke. Because that word as you can underline that word rulers, is the word polytarchus. And it's a very unusual word. So unusual that it's not found anywhere else other than Acts chapter 17. And so then the historians have refuted the accuracy of Luke. Until archaeologists dug deep under the city of Thessalonica and found these great pillars in the original courtyard with the words polytarchus. The rules now, now brothers and sisters, we don't need that, do we? we? We don't need that. Nevertheless, it's good to see, isn't it? It's good to see. There's like a mob out there that are challenging the veracity of God's word, and so occasionally, from time to time, God allows archaeologists to unturn a few things in the ground just to instil confidence in those men and women of faith. Isn't that lovely, Polytarchus. So the only time you find Polytarchus is there in the ground in Thessalonica and in your Bibles. Have confidence in your scriptures, brothers and sisters. Now, it's an interesting phrase, isn't it? These have turned the world upside down. Now, I wonder what they're meaning by that. It could be two things, couldn't it? There was Paul and Silas and they had turned the world upside down. They'd been in a prison. They'd been an earthquake. That the jail doors had opened. That the chains had been unloosed. They were men and women of turning, weren't they? But but there's something else there. Their message was one of turning. As they spoke in the synagogues, everything was upside down. You, you, you're telling me that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, is the God of the nations? Well, hadn't they read Genesis chapter 12 and the concluding verse? In this seed all the nations shall be. your quiet audience, blessed. That was the closing statement. That was the seal of the promises to Abraham. To the faith of Abraham, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, have a look at verse 10. So, there we read, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogues of the Jews. And so, I want you to imagine they go 50 miles and They have to go. They're they're fleeing for their lives. Such was the hatred and the rage of these Jews. And then you've got this lovely spirit in verse 11. These were more noble, these Bereans, than even the Thessalonians in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether these things should be so. Now, Now, brothers and sisters, Paul has great commendation for the Philippians and the Thessalonians. Arguably, the the Ecclesia of Philippi was the preeminent. Paul says, you are my crown and joy, you might know. But there's something here. There's a mark of commendation about the Bereans. And brothers and sisters, this is what we are as Christadelphians. You know... In, in, in some of the earliest definitions of the Christadelphian movement are two things. First of all, that we take our religion, our faith and our worship to the early apostles. In fact if you go on um, British Encyclopedia, the Encyclopedia Britannica, that, that's the very definition of Christadelphians, that we take our, our belief to the early Apostles, we have the earliest religion. That's what Britannica says. Another definition, say, that we're men and women of the book. You might have heard that phrase. It's actually a definition. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the spirit of Berea. This is what I've been appealing to the young people about. Don't listen to what I'm saying. If you're going to get things in your Bible, put them in pencil and check them for yourself. I might be wrong. I might be having a bad morning. Who knows? And this is why, for our young people, it's so important to understand Bible principles so that when they are listening particularly to brethren from the platform, they can think, does that sound true? Is that consistent with a Bible principle that I know? And if it's not, I've encouraged the teenagers, so you've got a problem now, young people, uh, brethren and sisters, I've encouraged the young people to quietly go up to the speaking brother and say, can you explain that for me? Because that's not consistent with this Bible principle. So expect some changes here. (laughs) But it's important, isn't it? And I said... Such as the Spirit of Christ, you can quietly correct the speaker or he'll quietly correct you. But it doesn't really matter, does it? Because we're searching for truth. We're in this together. I was at kids camp last week and I learned every single day from some of the youngest children there. And I've been studying Elijah. I've just written a book on it. I've been studying Elijah for years. And then out of the mouth of Bays, I think, Wow! Remember what I said in my exhortation yesterday. Let us pray for understanding. That is the spirit of Berea, brothers and sisters. Who are we as brothers and sisters? We believe in the hope of Israel, but we are men and women of the book. And if it's not found in scripture, we should reject it outright. Full stop. Full stop. That is the Christadelphians. That is our heritage. That is our movement for 160 years. Let us not change it in this final generation. It's too late. It's too late, brothers and sisters. Well, Paul has to flee again. Come down to verse 15. And so they hound him in Berea. He's gone 50 miles. And so here you see... They, they run away again, Paul and Silas and Timothy, and they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens and received a commandment unto Silas and Timothy for to come to him with all speed and depart. I want you just to imagine this. I, I want you to just, there's a very practical lesson in all this. You, you, you receive this vision and you go with high expectations and hopes and you go to Philippi and you see a... A Gentile woman who was probably a slave and a jailer and a woman that was possessed in her mind is not really the strongest ecclesia you'd imagine. It turns out to be the very best ecclesia, arguably, that ever was. Ever was. And then you go to Berea and, and, and you find brothers and sisters just like you and they're searching out the scripture, but you're hounded. You have to flee and you have to go as far as 200 miles. And you have to go on your own. And these two lovely companions that have been with you all the way through, Timothy and Silas, you say, stay back. And so for these 200 miles, and you can put that in your margin there, those 200 miles that Paul makes to Athens, he goes alone. I want you to think about that. How would you be feeling? You've responded to this vision. You've put everything in. That there's nothing left. And these two brethren that are keeping you up and standing have got words of consolation to you every single day. Now, you depart from them and you're alone. What would have been racing through Paul's mind as he, as he made his journey on his own? Have you ever thought about that? Was he broken? Well, with those thoughts in mind, I want to pick up the account here. And I want you to put this in your margin because we're going to find out the reaction of Paul. How would you be feeling? Come with me to 1 Thessalonians and chapter 3. We have to go to Thessalonians here, it's in his letter that we find out what Paul's reaction is. So he leaves Silas and Timothy, they they stay behind, he leaves them in in Thessalonica and he has to go all the way on his own to Athens. And so here then in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, what, what do we read? Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow labourer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you to concerning your faith. And, and what happens here is this. Paul leaves Timothy and Silas behind in Thessalonica. He makes his way to Athens, and there he remains. And he writes a letter to Paul and Silas and says, I need you now. I need you. I'm feeling it. Your heart goes out to Paul. This solitary figure in Athens, and they arrive and they come back and they they share a report, a a report of the brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. You know what he says? Go back! Go back! So, this is an example of Paul once again putting the cares of an ecclesia before his own personal cares. They come back with a report, and he goes, This is wonderful! Well, what a positive report. Go back and help them. They need your help more than I do. What a lovely spirit that is, brothers and sisters. So with those thoughts in mind, come with me to Acts chapter 18 now. And, and Paul now is going to continue. So I want to picture in your mind that they arrive there at Athens. He goes, go back. And they go back to Thessalonica. They're going to support the Ecclesia in Thessalonica. And Paul now is back on his ro- on the road. And he's going to travel. And he's going to travel to Corinth. Acts chapter 18 and verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens where he sends um, uh, Silas and Timothy and he came to Corinth. And and what happens there? Well, we we know what happens and found a certain Jewish um, couple named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy, and his wife um, Priscilla, okay? Okay? And we looked at that parenthesis yesterday, didn't we? Why there were no Jews in Philippi. So if you go down to verse 5, And when Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Now, now brothers and sisters, again, you you can quickly read over these words and not really picture in your mind what's going on. Paul's now in Corinth. He sent Silas and Timothy back when he was in Athens and they go back again into Thessalonica. They spend some time there and they come back with a report. But Paul is no longer in Athens. He's now in Corinth. And they come back with a report there in verse 5. And the report causes Paul to do something. What, What does he do? When he hears the report, it says he testify to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. Have a look in your margin. The margin says, Jesus is the Christ. Now, that's interesting. What was the message that Paul made in Thessalonica? Well, have a look at verse 3 of chapter 17. Remember when Paul was there for the three Sabbaths. And that this Jesus, at the end of verse 3, whom I preach unto you is Christ. So, what's going on? i tell you what's going on. The report is good. And Paul now knows that his preaching was effective. And so he takes the message that he gave in Thessalonica and now he goes out into Corinth with the same message that he had for the Thessalonians that Christ is Jesus or Jesus is the Christ. Can you see that? It was this wonderful message that he received and now he's buoyed with confidence that that message is effective. The risen Lord. And so then this this preaching of Thessalonica really becomes the blueprint of the gospel now that is going to spread around the world. This is the blueprint. This is the very message, brothers and sisters, that you have received in your heart. That Jesus is Christ. Simple statement, so profound. A statement that you know has changed your life. That Jesus, this man of 2,000 years ago, is the anointed, the Messiah, the Son of God, the promised seed. It's loaded with meaning, isn't it? That Jesus is Christ. And so, with this excitement, Paul now puts his pen to paper and writes the first epistle. That's the background. And it's at Corinth that he writes the second in quick succession. So that's the background. Here, he's joyous and he writes this epistle. And, and, and it's no surprise when we get there that it's a, it's a message of exhortation to this ecclesia because he's buoyed with the spirit that the truth has taken root. Well, as you can see, if you have um, an overview, really, of this epistle... Um, it has a very simple structure. So you've got the opening there, the, the narrative of thanksgiving, the exhortation, and the concluding remarks. So we're going to be picking out these elements, but what I want you to notice are, are a couple of things. Um, notice as you glance down those words, there, it really is a message of exhortation, and, and the things I want to highlight is that there's an exhortation on holiness, we'll look at that, an exhortation on brotherly love, and then there's a, a doctrinal problem that needs to be addressed, and It's about um, those who have died. There's a a couple of crucial points here because Paul, we've seen with our background, was absent, wasn't he? he? He couldn't stay in Thessalonica. He sends Timothy and Silas back and he has to explain himself. He has to explain his absence. It's a very real letter and he's going to share with them the joyous news of Timothy's report. But he also deals with some crucial points these matters of holiness, brotherly love, and those who have died. Now, now, the point in all of this, though it is a profound book and becomes the blueprint of the Gentile message that goes forth, you see, as we find all the way through Scripture, this is a practical epistle, it is a real letter to real people. It is dealing with real concerns there and then. Yet it has a profoundness, and it transcends time with the Bible principles and the lessons. Okay? That's the way Scripture works, like Bible prophecy. Bible prophecy has a fulfilment in that generation with that prophet and then it has a broader application. This is the power of God's word. Well, let's get into Thessalonians now. We're just going to look at a few things together. Uh, Let's look at the first epistle. The first epistle now and we just want to look at verse 1. Paul and Sivanus and Timotheus unto the ecclesia of the Thessalonians which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the first thing I want you to notice is um, the Apostle Paul doesn't credentialize himself with the word apostle does he? He refers to himself as Paul. In fact Philippians and Thessalonians these two Ecclesias in the area of Macedonia, in response of the man from Macedonia, these two early ecclesias under the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, Paul has an intimacy with these ecclesias, so he does not have to establish his seniority in the sight of God. Philemon is the only other one. So this um, belongs to a very special company. So Paul's not asserting his authority. This is an intimate ecclesia with him. He loved this ecclesia. They knew him well. They accepted his words. And though there is a a doctrinal problem, we're going to see in a moment or later on this week, that it's it's driven by real practical um, reasons. And we'll come to that later. But in all of this, I want you to notice this. We should never, never, never overlook this. Verse 6, And ye became followers of us, he says to this ecclesia, and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So, so first of all, notice that Paul says, You are followers of me, that I am followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now that is a pattern. pattern uh, this pattern is seen throughout Paul's writing, that you follow me as I follow and I'm sure you know that that word follower is imitator. As a child imitates a parent, sometimes to the parent's embarrassment at times. But here, this young ecclesia was imitating their father, their father in the Lord, the apostle Paul. But what were they to imitate? Well, the imitation notice is having received the word In much affliction. A couple of things there. Much affliction. So they were to imitate Paul in the way that he received the gospel in affliction. Ah, that's interesting, isn't it? So so the first thing we notice there is that the affliction must have increased when Paul left. Now remember, we've seen in Acts chapter 17, the Roman authorities go into Jason's house and they drag him out. That was a time of persecution, and Jason was frightened. But it would suggest, there's a little hint here from his letter, that that persecution increased. Think about that, brothers and sisters. When you're talking about persecution under Nero, that was a serious thing. As you know, he used to light up Rome every single night, white Jews and Bible Christians in tar, on crosses, just lighting up the pass across Rome, and he delighted in it. Delighted in it. But they were to be imitators of Paul in the way that they received the gospel in affliction. Now that's interesting because I think it sets out the Ecclesia of Thessalonica. So if I were to ask you, who is the best example in your mind other than the Lord Jesus Christ who endured affliction, who was patient in affliction, who would you say? Job. Right away. Right away, Job. How many of us would say the Thessalonians? Perhaps none of us. If it's none of us, can it be all of us next time? Because this is the example that Paul is setting out. He's saying under inspiration, when you think of examples of those who endure persecution, the preeminent example is the Thessalonians. And I want that to guide your thinking throughout this week. This ecclesia was remarkable with their faith. Yet each of those members of that ecclesia were Jobs, who endured patiently. Well, well, that sets out something. Now, brothers and sisters, it's interesting when you think about that. It's not just they, they mimic Paul in the way that he was as a servant of God. No, no, no. They mimic Paul in the way that he endured The way that the gospel message worked within him and he was prepared to face persecution, that's the mimicking. It's in that particular action. Now, look at this. How do you derive strength, brothers and sisters? You of us, all of us this morning, how do we derive strength? Well, well, look at this, because this is why Paul says these words under inspiration. Unto the ecclesia of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a loaded phrase. In God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Now, three metaphors come to mind. First of all, I want to draw your attention to the little word in. In God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. No, notice that, just underline that, there's, a, there's an emphasis there, it's a repeat. And anything that's repeated in scripture, any time you see something twice, as Brother Harry Tennant used to say to me, that's for emphasis, Brother Stephen. Right? So I'm sharing that with you this morning, it's for emphasis. Now, what are the metaphors? Well, there's, there's many, but for me, the leading three are that Jesus spoke of his disciples in him. Remember that? That he's the vine and they are the branches, but they are the branches in the vine. John 15 verse 2. We also have a similar metaphor of the body of Christ, that we are the limbs in the body. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 18. And then Paul describes our life, that we are hidden with Christ in God. What a lovely Have you thought about that? We're not hidden in Christ, we're with Christ, hidden in God. So we are fellow heirs of salvation. We are following, we are mimicking him in his persecution. Paul saying, Follow me as I as I mimic Christ. And, And there's Paul mimicking the Lord Jesus Christ in his persecution. And they now are mimicking Paul in their persecution, and we are to mimic Paul in our persecution, in our affliction, who mimicked the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see that? It's something that cascades down into our community. And so then, if you were going to paraphrase those three verses up on the screen, how would you, how would you describe it? Well, I would suggest that that word in, if you paraphrase those three verses, it's saying to us that we draw strength. Ah, where do you draw strength, brothers and sisters, when you're down? Oh, all kinds of places, Brother Stephen. Everywhere, really. And it takes us some time to realise that where we're going to draw strength is from the scripture and from one another and from prayers. Aren't we all like that from time to time? Yes, we are. And that's where we need to be drawing strength. And so here Paul now is saying, this ecclesia, with all the, the insecurity of a young ecclesia being persecuted in, the, in, this, in this political hotbed on the, on the European arena or the Asian arena here, feeling so alone, so isolated, they're with Christ. They're companions with Christ and they're drawing strength from God. That's where they're going to draw strength. It's worth just asking ourselves the question, where we draw strength from, really, in our lives. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that with these thoughts in mind, that Paul then goes on to say, having established this idea of being in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now now he's already said in verse 6 that there's much affliction. How can you have peace with affliction? Well perhaps Paul is picking up the very idea of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. And as we go there, we're thinking about that phrase, grace be unto you and peace. And this word peace. Well, it resonates, doesn't it, this word peace? Because here Jesus says to his disciples, and this is a, an intimate chapter. You, you can't find a more intimate chapter, can you, in the scripture. Here, the Lord Jesus Christ, deep in earnest prayer with his father, speaking about his disciples and those who will follow them thereafter. And, and, and these words here. In John 14, in verse 27, Peace I leave with you, but my peace I give unto you. It's not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let you be afraid. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because Paul is, is, is picking out, I think, this very idea... Because these are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the first generation of Gentiles to fulfill this prayer of John 14. This is a response of this prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ here in John chapter 14. And and what peace is he referring to? Well, there's no peace outside, is there? The, The world is turbulent. So where's the peace? He's talking about the inner man, isn't he? He's talking about inner peace. And when we've got inner peace, brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter how much the waves are roaring. We're standing there with the Lord Jesus Christ who said to those waves, Peace be still. Do you feel like that? How is your life? Are you in the midst of the seas and they're roaring and you can't even see land? Or are you feeling there in the audience this morning that... God is with you when you've got inner peace. We're all in different places, aren't we? But let's pick out this idea. Come to John chapter 16 and verse 33, the end of that chapter. These things, says Jesus, I have spoken unto you, that ye might have peace in the world. Ye shall have tribulation, he says. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. I wonder, brothers and sisters, how many of us are really rejoicing in our heart when we read those words that Jesus has overcome the world. Is that effective in your life? Is that effective in mind? But, well, well, Paul could speak, couldn't he, with authority. Because he felt peace when his life was so turbulent. Come with me to Philippians chapter 4. The, 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 the very place when he refers to in Philippi, which was really the, the, the genesis of the whole preaching of the gospel and the, 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 the truth being received by the Thessalonians. And what does he say here? Philippians 4, verse 6. Be careful for nothing, he says to this ecclesia, this neighbouring ecclesia to Thessalonica. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which us all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Okay, so we've got that whole idea of the peace. Now, now what is Paul referring to? Well, I would um, suggest that what he's referring to is... That very night in the jail, when life was very uncertain, yet the surety of Paul and Silas, perhaps Timothy there, in the prison. And they had confidence. And perhaps many of these recipients now of the epistle to the Philippians had been in the prison that night. ex-convicts. And they listen, they think, yes, I remember that. I remember when Paul's life was very dire and he could have been facing imminent death. Remember, he was, he was whipped within an inch of his life at Philippi and those scars carried with him throughout his ministry. Yet he was a Roman citizen. He was whipped to a within an inch of his life, and they say, I remember that. And he had peace. Can you see that? And Paul's reminding them, and this Ecclesia at Thessalonica, this is the exhortation. He's saying, remember me, you will have heard. You received the gospel message because I was loosed from the prison of Philippi. That's how you received the gospel message, and remember me, you're going to mimic me. Remember me in the prison at midnight, and I sang praises to God. That's exactly what I want you to do too. Now, brothers and sisters, um, I know Canada well enough now, and I know that you're not facing persecution. This year in particular, many in the, the missionary field have. So we can feel quite confident and think, well, you know, these words don't relate to me. I'm not in persecution. Well, I want you to think again. Come with me to the simplest words of the Lord. Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to look at these words now a little more carefully. Matthew Chapter 13, and this is the parable of the Sower. We're going to the parable of the Sower. Even our youngest Sunday school scholars will know the parable of the Sower. Well, I ask you, brothers and sisters, how well do you know the parable of the sower? We're going to find during the course of this week that this is developed throughout the book of Thessalonians. It becomes a, really a, a basis, a platform for many of the writings here of Paul. Well well, Matthew chapter 13, and we just want to pick out a, a few verses, verse 20 uh, for, for starters. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, which anon with joy receiveth it. Yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while, for when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended, so this is an example of the word going out to those brothers and sisters there, or men and women who are on stony ground, and they receive the truth enthusiastically, but because it's stony, the roots haven't buried deep, and when challenge comes their way, they perish and We know brothers and sisters because we we, we all believe we're in the good ground, don't we? We don't even take note of these verses. Because we're in the good ground. Well, when you look at verse 21, brothers and sisters, that word persecution is the same idea that's picked out in Thessalonians, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because it forms part of a couplet. The effect of tribulation is the same effect as persecution. So the parable of the Sower saying, The dangers of tribulation equals the dangers of persecution. So you might be feeling comfortable in your seats this morning and say, well, I don't really face persecution. Well, you certainly face tribulation. And it has the same effect. Because that word tribulation means a pressing, a pressing together. It means a pressure. And brothers and sisters, if there's ever an age, this is the age of pressure. Pressure is everywhere. Work pressure, family pressure, financial pressure, health pressure, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. All kinds of pressure. We've got it from every direction. Oh, we might be in stony ground. You know what? The parable of the sower is not really about where you are, is it? It's how you respond. That is what defines what patch of soil you're in because you've been raised a Christadelphian and you're the tenth generation of Christadelphians, means absolutely nothing. Nothing. Because your father's a well-known speaking brother, that means nothing. It's how we all individually respond to God's word. determines who we are. And, And this idea of pressure hits us all, young and old, single and married, everyone. And so suddenly now, this Ecclesia, a model Ecclesia for a modern world, becomes now very relevant, doesn't it? Because we thought that this persecution in verse 6 didn't relate to us, but we are a community of pressure. (laughs) Well-known verses, come to Matthew chapter 7, and if you've not seen these thoughts before, um, perhaps it will um, colour Some of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's how we manage the pressure, brothers and sisters. You know, we we, we talk to one another and we say, you know, I'm really under... Pressure at the moment. And Paul and, and the, the apostle Paul's not really interested in that, neither is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's how we respond to that pressure. Matthew chapter seven and verse fourteen Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be the find it. Now we know there's two paths. How many of you knew that the word narrow there it means compressed, straightened? It's God who's compressing it. It's no surprise, brothers and sisters, we're under pressure, because God's doing it. So don't complain easy I know how many of us ask one another how's your week been oh you know Tuesday was terrible that shouldn't be our question on Sunday mornings what should be the question how are you handling your pressure and is there anything I can do to help reframe your question brothers and sisters there's pressure everywhere there should be and if there's no pressure, we're not spiritually discerning our lives. Ask one another, how can I help you? Assuming that we're all under terrible pressure. That's the good assumption. And then in Acts 14, verse 22, that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. It's the same word. Oppressing, a oppressing a together. Now, now... Um, in, in just a few words, and, and um, just, just be patient, please. Be like Joe. Just, just be patient with me, uh, just for a moment, and then we'll finish. Think about a practical lesson. We, we talked a lot with the kids about mathematics. Newton's forces. Do you know what one of Newton's forces is? And remember, these are God's laws. Every force has an equal and opposite force. Do you, do you know that? Well, if there is pressure from without, what has to be happening within you? There has to be pressure from within that's moving without. Now if the world is placing family, work, children, financial, marital, it goes on and on and on. What, what, what has to be challenging that pressure without? It's the word of God. Okay? You, you, that's Newton's forces. How are you going to push that pressure to one side? the word of God has got to be more effective within you than the pressure that is without. That's the important, brothers and sisters, of getting down to God's word. We cannot deal with pressure unless we deal with Scripture. Now, think about this. This, this, this whole notion of pressure. How many of us, and you don't need to shout out, but you can answer this question, and, and many of you have already spoken to me. Thank you for sharing. How many of you, brothers and sisters, have come this week to this Bible camp feeling crushed? That the pressure without is just simply too much. And, and, and now we, we've come to this week hoping almost for a miracle. That this is a time of spiritual oasis when we can develop our strength again. How, well, I know because many of you have spoken. There's a number in the audience actually this morning feeling like that. So we should think about this early ecclesia. We should reflect upon our own challenges and we should resolve within our hearts that we're going to be more determined to get down to God's word. Whatever challenges are facing, God will never place more pressure upon your shoulders than you can handle. We know that is a Bible principle. And let's take comfort together, brothers and sisters, of Paul and this early ecclesia. Let me just show you a few things and then we will finish. I don't want to get a bad reputation in my first class. But have a look at this. I just want to show you this in 1 Thessalonians and chapter 2. And look at this. I just want to show you a phrase. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 2, Paul says, But even after we had suffered before, there's a suffering, and were shamefully entreated, ye know, at Philippi... Now. They know because Paul and Silas bore the whip marks on their back. As ye know. So the Ecclesia of Thessalonica knew that these two men had suffered. And because they suffered, Paul was galvanizing their confidence that they too can suffer too in the strength of God. Now now notice how that phrase is used. As ye know, a simple phrase, and I just want you just to notice it in your Bibles. Chapter 1 and verse 5, notice, as ye know. I've got them all marked out. As ye know. It's a theme, actually. As ye know. Halfway down, verse 5 of chapter 1. Verse 2 of chapter 2, as ye know. Verse 5 of chapter 2, as ye know. Verse 11 of chapter 2, as ye know. Then turn to chapter 3, verse 3, as ye know. Verse 4, of or verse 2 of chapter 4, as ye know. You can can have my notes after. But the point was, they knew. They knew Paul had suffered. And in this suffering, and this is the exhortation, brothers and sisters, in our closing remarks here, and and, and think about whether you can do that. And if you can't do that, work out how you can. Because here, at the end of chapter, well, verse 2 of of chapter 2, look at this. Paul says, as you know, I've suffered, he says. I- I've really, really suffered. Yet, it says, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. So I want you to picture my final remarks. He says, you know, you know I've suffered. Yet, withstanding all this suffering, I was bold to speak God in much contention. Now, I just want you to notice these words here. Where bold means um, to speak freely, to have confidence. Okay? So he spoke up for Christ. And he did it in the word contention. Now that's worth noting in in your Bibles, because that word contention is the Greek word agon, where we get the word agony. That's continual pain, isn't it? So he was speaking up for God in... Agony and it means a contest, a conflict, a a fight or a battle. And here Paul is saying, you know, brothers and sisters, and he's speaking to you, and these are my closing remarks. He's saying, You know what? You're feeling pain. You you want to stop, you're in agony. And many of you here this morning are in agony. Well, you know what? It's a contest. And you've got to keep on going. Because it's a race and you've hit the wall, but you've got to keep on going. It's a fight. You've got to do another round because the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed in us. That's the point. I know you're in agony. I felt it myself, says Paul. And if you're feeling agony, brothers and sisters, this morning, you know what? Get up and carry on. That's the exhortation. How lovely is that? Each day, I'm going to conclude, except my final class, with three questions you can reflect on and we're going to finish like this brothers and sisters and with these thoughts don't feel overwhelmed have faith it's easy to say but that's what Paul's saying have faith ask yourselves as we reflect now do we view the pressures of life as stresses and strains that God is using for you to prepare you and only you for God's coming kingdom How often are you bold in speaking up for Christ, knowing that at times it's going to cause you problems? Our young people, honestly, it's thrilled my heart some of the things that they've stood up for in their classrooms. Extraordinary. One young man said to me last week, something that he said in his classroom, he was bullied ever since. I don't know whether he's ever shared that with his parents. Bullied ever since. Our young people are standing up for God with boldness. Are you? And finally, I'll leave this with you. Do you, as you sit here in the audience this morning, are you feeling perfect peace? Are you? And if not, why not?